ongoing story through it, and it was either too much to preach or too little, so we went with too little. <laughs> so we just kind of ended it. Um, they're, they're drunk, period. Um, wanted to invite our children to Children's Church. Um, teacher will meet you in the back. Uh, just an age-appropriate setting for them to hear the, the scriptures together. And um, I want to start by saying Happy Mother's Day to all our mothers. Um, I got a text from my mom this morning that she went to church with my sister, and uh, I think that's what's going on here is we've got some empty seats. I think some people went to church with mom. <laughs> that's a good thing. Um, that, that's, a, that's a blessing. Uh, so uh, before we take a look at the scriptures, let me open us in a word of prayer. Lord, uh, we just sang it. Lord, we do want more of you in our life. And one of the ways that you give us more of yourself is through gathering together, through prayer, but also, uh, Lord, we, we receive more of you through your word as we hear what you, you have done throughout history, what you've promised to do in the future. And uh, we thank you for the word that you've given us, and we pray that you would open it to our minds and hearts now. Uh, Father, I want to pray for um, Joshua Pickering, um, the Stromberg's grandchild, fell this morning and bumped his head, um, has a pretty good knot. Uh, Lord, is, uh, we thank you that he's received a good diagnosis from the hospital, that, um, that it's not uh, probably not a brain injury, but uh, Lord, we pray for his healing. Uh, we pray for his parents and for uh, you to use this injury as something to, uh, to bring you glory, that uh, even in our suffering, Lord, you, you are able to rescue those things and, and infuse them with meaning, with gospel hope. Uh, Father, I thank you for Jeannie's return to church. Dick and Jeannie, it's good to see them again. Thank you for Jeannie's healing. And we pray that you continue to make her strong. And, uh, and we thank you for the, the miraculous surgery that you gave her. And uh, just pray continually for her restoration. And Lord, we miss Ron and Rachel. We pray for Ron's healing as well. Uh, thank you for the way that you have uh, been working in him in, through his injury as well. Uh, Lord, you are so good to your people and so faithful. And then, uh, Lord, I want to pray specifically for uh, the ministry of CareNet here in Lancaster. Um, such a wonderful way to care for pregnant uh, moms, uh, for fathers, uh, to provide for babies, and to encourage uh, women and, and men to be good and faithful parents as well. So we pray for the ministry at, uh, at CareNet. We pray that you would uh, continue to expand their, their reach, Lord, that they would gather many people to, uh, to hear about the good news of Jesus Christ in and through their pregnancy. Uh, Father, thank you for their, their work in, in Lancaster. And now, Lord, would you be with us? Would your Holy Spirit, I, I pray, would you send him to be with us now as we look into the word? Open our minds and hearts. Help us to see and understand what it is that you have to say. We ask all of these things in Christ's name. Amen. So Ramey's already hinted, this section is about the Holy Spirit. And, and that's what I told you. Remember when we started Acts, I said, you know, we call it the Acts of the Apostles. Um, it could really be called the Acts of the Holy Spirit because what's going on is the Holy Spirit is at work throughout this book. Uh, but again, the, the theme of the book of Acts is Jesus' disciples making disciples. And uh, if you remember from, from the previous week, I said the only way we can do that, the only hope we have in doing that is if God's Holy Spirit shows up. If the Holy Spirit's not involved, we're not making disciples. So there's so much that you can do, and you should work on those things, and you should do those things well. But at a certain point, you have to go, Lord, this is in your hands. And that's exactly what we're going to see today. We're getting just the introduction of this day of Pentecost. And it's, it's primarily about the Holy Spirit. What we'll see next week is what the Holy Spirit accomplishes through the apostles, through the disciples, as they go out and preach. 
So the disciples will start making disciples, but the way Luke wrote this is it starts with, it's rooted in the arrival of the Holy Spirit. So what we're going to see this morning is we're going to look at who the Holy Spirit is, what the Holy Spirit does, and how people react to it. Who the Holy Spirit is, what he does, and how people react to that. Um, and it's really hard. I, I really want to keep going on this, but what we're going to get is just a small portion of the doctrine of the Holy Spirit, of who the Holy Spirit is. There's so much more that can be said, but there's plenty of opportunity because he's going to continue to show up. And so we'll, we'll continue to unfold who he is and what he does and that kind of stuff. But at least here we'll begin to get that, that first flavor of it. So it takes place on the day of Pentecost. Um, the day of Pentecost, by this point in, in history, had been calculated to be 50 days after Passover. Um, the way that it originally was set up was Passover would happen, and then when the first fruits came in, when the, the harvest was just getting ripe, and they'd take that first group of, of um, uh, produce that had come to fruition, that would be the day of Pentecost. Um, but it wasn't called Pentecost back then. It was the, it was the Feast of Weeks, or the Feast of um, uh, First Fruits. It eventually gained the name Pentecost, which means 50 weeks, when they said, well, we're not so much an, a, an agricultural society anymore. We don't live by our fields so much anymore. We're a little bit more developed, so we'll just set it at 50 days out. So that's the day of Pentecost. 50 days after, uh, after Passover, that's the day. And so the day of Pentecost has arrived, and they're all together in one place. When suddenly there came a sound from heaven, like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house. So the disciples have all come together. One of the mistakes that I make regularly, and I want to spare you this, is whenever I read this section, I think it's the 12. That the 12 disciples, the 12 apostles are sitting in a room. You know, I don't know what they're doing, just sitting there. And then suddenly the place fills with wind and, and these miraculous events happen. If we look in context, what we saw at the end of chapter 2 was there was 120 together, more than 120 in this room together, including the 12. So when we see this, don't think this is just 12 apostles sitting there. Because um, most of the classic art you ever see of the day of Pentecost is it's 12 guys with little flames over their head. It's like it's more than 12. There's a lot of people here. This is all the disciples gathered together. So they're in one place, and suddenly the place is filled with the sound of rushing wind. Whirling wind fills the building. Um, why whirling wind? We'll come back to that in a little bit. And as they're sitting there, suddenly these tongues of fire appear to them and divide and come and rest on each one. And then they're filled with the Holy Spirit and they begin to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. That's the picture. And what this is, is this is the dramatic arrival of the Holy Spirit on, on Christ's church. That the Holy Spirit comes in this very dramatic fashion and it only gets more dramatic when we look next week. It just continues to build from there. So... Um, what we want to talk about first is who the Holy Spirit is. Um, when you think of these, these tongues of flame coming down and resting on people, it almost sounds like the Holy Spirit is like this force. You know, there's this, this, this power beam comes in and, and zaps them, and now they have this ability or something. Um, what we have to remember is that the Holy Spirit is a person. Now, when I've said person in the past, people think human, because I've said God is a person. He's not some cosmic wish machine. He is a person. And so what I want to do real quick is just kind of define, what do I mean by person? What is a person? Um, one of the coolest definitions I read was that a person is a distinct center of consciousness. Okay. <laughs> what does that mean? 
Um, another, another one said, in reference to the Trinity, as three distinct persons, remember we talk about the Trinity, we say there is one God who exists eternally as three distinct persons. So when we refer to the Trinity as three persons, the word refers to the attributes of personhood. That is self-awareness, choice, reason, love, a will, consciousness, those kind of things. So the only persons you know are human beings. And so it's natural for us to think, well, when I think of God, I, I hear the word person, I think of a human being and try to translate that to God. But that's not how it works. A person can be more than just a human being. Every, person, every human being you've ever met is a person. But God is a person as well. So the, the Holy Spirit is not a force. The Holy Spirit is a person. And he comes to the church and he does things with the church. But he does it because he is personal. That's the first and most important thing we need to remember is that he is a person. He, he has a will. He has emotions. Later we'll hear about grieving the Holy Spirit, lying to the Holy Spirit, that the Holy Spirit sheds abroad the love of God in our hearts. This is a distinct individual, a center of consciousness, if we want to say that, who is actually doing these things. I've said it before. I have never grieved electricity. Electricity is a force. It has grieved me when I've been a little clumsy with it, but I have never grieved electricity. I've never done something and had my electricity go, why? Why did you do that? I was, I was happy powering that light and you turned it off and now I'm so sad. Electricity doesn't care. When, if I was to step out in front of a bus and get hit by a bus, that's a force. That's the inertia of the bus. The weight of the bus times the, the speed at which it's moving, bumping into me, that's a force. I have never grieved inertia. It never was bothered that it ran into me. As a matter of fact, all it did was kept pushing. So you can't grieve, you can't please, you can't challenge, you can't make sad a force. But you can a person. Because a person is a center of consciousness. It's a will, it's an emotion. It is all of that together. And that's how the Holy Spirit is described in our New Testament. So the picture here, it seems fairly impersonal. These little things that look like tongues of flame come and rest on people, and, and that's when they receive the Holy Spirit. But that's a person doing that. That's not, that's not just the force. So why was it tongues of fire? When you got saved and when you, the Holy Spirit came to dwell in you, did a tongue of fire appear over your head? Did somebody look at you and go, what is that? It, it didn't happen. It doesn't happen very often. Um, when we look at the Holy Spirit doing anything in the New Testament, or actually in the entire Bible, um, there's only a couple of times where he, he forms himself in a bodily form to be seen. And so the last one was when Jesus was baptized, and he, he took the form of a dove and descended from heaven. So why is it he doesn't take the form of a dove here? Is, is the Holy Spirit a bird and he just lands on people? No, here he takes the form of, of fire and he descends on people. So the Holy Spirit comes to them in the form of fire because Jesus told them, I will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. And what that means is not he's going to do two different things. The, the word for that is a hendiadus, which is two words connected by the word and that are explaining one thing. Hendiadus. I had to look it up. I can never remember how to pronounce it. It's spelled funny. Um, it's, it's some Greek, but it's two words saying the same thing. So why would I say that, the, that Jesus baptizing them with the Holy Spirit and fire is a hendiatus? 
Because in the Gospels, there's two places where we are told that Jesus is going to do this. In Matthew 3.11, he says that he will baptize with the Holy Spirit and with fire. And in Luke, Luke says the same thing, Holy Spirit and fire. But Mark just says the Holy Spirit. And John says that just the Holy Spirit, that he will baptize with the Holy Spirit. So either we've got a problem with our Gospels not agreeing, or they're all saying the same thing. Plus, even in our context, Acts chapter 1, Jesus did the same thing. He said, you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So was the fire the Holy Spirit or not? That's why Jesus said that he would baptize with the Holy Spirit and with fire is because it would be this physical manifestation so they could see the Holy Spirit coming on people. This is a new thing for the church. The, 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 we'll get into that in a little bit, a little bit more about is, was the Holy Spirit present in the Old Covenant. But this is something new that the church needs to see. That's why the Holy Spirit had to do it in a physical form is so that you could see, hey, all of these other people got the Holy Spirit as well. It wasn't just Peter. We all expect Peter because he's the leader. But no, the Holy Spirit came on all of us. We saw it. He's not going to do this again. In the rest of the book of Acts, there will be no more tongues of fire. But the apostles are going to look and say, yep, they received the Holy Spirit when they believed. So this is why he had to do it this way. This is this new thing that he's starting. And so he does it with this magnificent show of these tongues of fire to come down on them. So he does it through tongues of fire. He is a person. And then the last point I want to make about who the Spirit is, is the Holy Spirit is extraordinarily intimate. He is God's intimacy when he draws close to us. The Holy Spirit came upon all of these people in this room. This is God, the third person of the Trinity, coming and landing on people and staying on them. So if this is just the power from God, there was a, a, a book I read a while ago, Delighting in the Trinity by Michael Reeves. And when he talked about the Holy Spirit, I thought he defined it extremely well, th this uh, necessity of the Holy Spirit being a person and being so intimate. He says, there is a problem when the Spirit is thought of as a force and not a person. It gives the impression of God up in heaven lobbing down tokens of blessing, the force while he himself remains distant. So think about that for a second. God is in heaven. Jesus has now ascended and he's gone back to heaven. And so the church is left alone. And God just zaps them with his force from heaven. Reeves says the problem with that is that um, the Spirit's personal presence in us means that we are brought to enjoy the Spirit's own intimate uh, communion with the Father and the Son. So the Holy Spirit, as a person coming and dwelling with us, rather than God's distance force, is it is God dwelling with his people still, even though Jesus has ascended. And what did Jesus say? Didn't he tell us, look, you're going you're gonna to go out and, and you're going to preach the gospel to the nations. You're going to make disciples of them. You're going to teach them. You're going to baptize them. And lo, I am with you to the end of the age. Is Jesus with you right now? Is he sitting in this room with us? Not physically. But he promised that he would send his spirit, and it's through his spirit dwelling in his church that he remains with us until the end of the age. If it was a power, if, if it wasn't God being intimate with his people, if it was just some divine power like zapping out of his fingertips, God remains very distant from us, very removed from us. 
But he sent the third person of the Trinity to come and dwell with us and to be with us forever. That's how much God wants to be with his people. So um, Reeves goes on, he says, if the spirit were not God, he could not do that. It's because God is three persons, Father, Son, and Spirit, that we can have such communion. If God was in heaven and his spirit were a mere force, he would be more distant than the moon. But our God, from the very beginning, has longed to dwell with his people. Do you remember what he did in the garden? He, after the fall of Adam and Eve, he comes and he walks in the garden in the cool of the evening. God's a spirit. The cool of the evening is not going to bother him. It doesn't matter if it's hot. He came and walked in the cool of the evening because it would be comfortable for his people. And he said, come and be with me. Adam, where are you? He calls out to them. He wanted to be with them from the very beginning. When he comes to Abraham, he's going he's to sit down with two angels and have lunch with him because God delights to be with his people. He seeks to be with his people. When he comes to Israel through Moses preaching the law, he says, you have to build this tabernacle because I want to dwell right in the center. I'm going to be in the tabernacle. My presence will be in the tabernacle. Set it up right in the middle of the nation and all the way around me. Put the, the Levites around me and then station all the nations around me. That's the plan is I want to be right in the middle of my people. And when his people sin, he tells Moses, look, you guys go up to the promised land. I'll, we'll, you know, I'll take care of everything, but you guys go. I'm not going with you because I'm too holy, and if I go, I'm going to kill you all. And Moses' response is, Lord, don't do it. If you don't go, just kill me now. If you're not dwelling with us, this is, this is pointless. This is fruitless. And God says, then I'll go with you. God has always desired, desired to dwell amongst his people. He desired that so much that the second person of the Trinity... The eternally existent Son of God, there was never a time when the Son didn't exist. Eternally begotten of the Father, he wanted to dwell with his people so much that he added to himself a human nature. He took on the form of a servant. He, he emptied himself of all the prerogatives, all the blessings, all the, the, the honor and glory that he was due and took on the form of a servant so that he could put on dirty sandals and walk amongst his people and be with us on a regular basis. And so as he, he ascends, he says, look, I have to go. And if I don't go, then, then the comforter won't come. So I'm going to go to heaven, and I'm going to send somebody. And so God, desiring to remain with his people, even still sends his Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit has to be a person, or the intimacy is broken. I, I feel no love, no connection to the CEO of uh, California Edison because he sends me power. There, there is no connection to him. I, I don't feel any love from the man. I appreciate the fact that my lights turn on, my air conditioning works, that's great. But I have no personal connection. That's what it would be like if the Holy Spirit were nothing but a power, is God would be that distant from you. You'd, be, you know, you'd appreciate it because, hey, I'll tap into the Holy Spirit, and I'll get some stuff done, and that's, that's groovy. But God would be so distant from you. Instead, the Holy Spirit comes and he dwells in you and he lives in you and it's God being that close, that intimate. Our God is like no other God in any other religion. The gods of other religions are fairly distant. You, you can't really know Allah. You can't really. He, he's so ineffable. He's so other. He's so distant and so different that we can't really know him. And so 
the, the, I think it was the Pickering said that when they're witnessing to Muslims, it blows their mind when you say God loves you. Really? That's kind of intimidating. I, I, I enjoy the idea of God being distant and, you know, I can serve him and just keep him happy. But a God that loves me, that's that personal? That's, that's too much for me to handle. That, that's overwhelming. Christianity is the religion that says God so loved the world that he sent his only begotten son. That's the religion of our God. It, not a mere intellectual, not at a distance, but close and personal and intimate. He dwells with us. So who the Holy Spirit is, and we'll see more of him and more of him and more of him, is first and foremost, he is our personal God. He desires to be with his people. He longs to fill us. He longs to dwell with us. He longs to be with us. He does things with us and through us and in us. So there's more to be said about him as we go, and, and we'll cover more of it. So the next question to ask is, what does the Holy Spirit do? So this, this personal God comes and he dwells us, he fills us, he lives with us. What does he do? And that's that next section. There were dwelling in Jerusalem, Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at the sound, the multitude came together and they were bewildered. At the sound. What sound? Well, in the first part, when it talks about the sound of the wind filling the upper, upstairs, it's echos, where we get the word echo. And echos means it's, it's almost always used, or it's always used of non-human speech, of natural events, of, of symbols sounding, of thunder, of trumpets blaring and that kind of stuff. It's not used of human speech. So that's the sound of this wind filling this upper room. But now what word that Luke loses, Luke uses here is uh, phonos, where we get phonograph from. And phonos is just a very broad word that means sound. It can mean natural sounds. It can also include human speech. And so I think Luke is using this on purpose. So when we ask the question here, what sound was it that they heard that drew the multitude together? It was both is they heard this whirling wind in this building going, what on earth is that? And they stop, and the next thing they hear is all of these disciples rushing out and announcing this good news of who Jesus Christ is in all of these different languages, and that draws a crowd. So what does the Holy Spirit do? He draws a crowd. He draws people together. At the sound, the multitude came together, and they were bewildered because each one of them was hearing uh, hearing them speak in his own language, and they were amazed and astonished. And they said, aren't these Galileans? And then they list this whole list of different regions that Aaron read for us. It's, it's basically all these different parts of the Roman Empire, from different parts of the Roman Empire. Now, one of the things about the Roman Empire is it gave us a ton of great stuff. Aqueducts would take water to dry places, and it was the Romans who built the aqueducts roads were built. It used to just be goat paths. The Romans wanted to be able to move their armies fast, so they built roads. And so the, the Roman Empire now becomes connected through these different roads. And so the, the empire is more unified because they can travel to each other. They can, they can provide water. The other thing they did was they kind of enforced what's called a lingua franca, a common tongue amongst all the people. It wasn't Roman. It wasn't Latin. It was Greek because Alexander the Great had kind of conquered most of the world, and then the Romans came in and kind of took his place. So Greek was what was called the lingua franca. 
So if we were to go through all of these lists and we say, well, what do they speak there? All of these folks would speak Greek. But the thing about a lingua franca is it doesn't replace your native tongue. The, the lingua franca of the world right now is pretty much, although it's beginning to fade, is pretty much English. If you go to other countries, you can usually find somebody who can speak at least a little bit of English. It's just the general tongue that's, that's widely spoken. Um, but um, previous pastor and I went to China and we were teaching in the underground church and we went to this hot pot restaurant. That's where you have this big bowl of really hot oil. And the name of the place was the fish head. And we didn't want fish heads. <laughs> so they would bring you meat and you would dunk it in these oils and you'd fry it and that's what you would eat. And we kept trying to tell them no fish heads. But they didn't speak English. And so we're like, man, we're sunk. We're going to wind up eating fish heads. I just know it. But somebody from the other side of the restaurant came over and, and broke and broken English said, what do you want? And we told them and they went, okay, and they interpreted for us. That's the function of a lingua franca. So when these folks are standing here and they're saying, how is it that we hear them speaking our own native language? That specifically means their native language, not the lingua franca. It's not that these, these guys are all Galileans and are now speaking Greek. They're speaking in languages they don't know, in tongues that they have never spoken before. All of these people are hearing it. This is a miracle. And this is what the Holy Spirit does, is the Holy Spirit, when you kind of reflect back on it, the Holy Spirit is an initiator. He starts things. He, he, he is present at the beginning of just about every great event that you can think of in the Bible. He's the initiator. So, for example, at the birth of Jesus, or at the announcement of Jesus' birth, rather, the angel comes to Mary and says, don't be afraid, you have found favor with God, and behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great, and he will be called Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever and ever, and his kingdom will have no end. And Mary said to the angel, how can this be since I'm a virgin? And the angel said to her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called holy. So even at the beginning of this new epoch in, in, in history of the world, this unimaginable truth that the Son of God is going to take on human form, he's going to add to himself human nature and be born of a virgin, there the Holy Spirit is at work. The angel promises the way this is going to happen is the Holy Spirit's going to work on you. I think that's another, um, another time where the two words are, are joined by and, meaning the same thing. The Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Almighty will overshadow you. Something happened in Mary. She went from being a virgin to suddenly having a fertilized egg in her. Unnaturally, it just happened because the Holy Spirit came upon her. The Holy Spirit initiated the birth of Jesus. He, and in a way you could say he initiated the incarnation. And then the next time we see the Holy Spirit is at Jesus' baptism. So Jesus goes to the Jordan, he's baptized, and as he comes out of the waters, he hears a voice from heaven. The Holy, oh, I'm sorry, let me just read it. Uh, now all the people were baptized, and Jesus also had been baptized, and he was praying, and the heavens were opened, and the Holy Spirit descended on him in, the, in a bodily form like a dove, and a voice from heaven said, You are my beloved Son, with you am I well pleased. 
The Holy Spirit is here at the beginning of Jesus' ministry now, not just his birth, but when he's about to burst onto the scene and and do the mighty deeds of God and preach the kingdom of, of God, the Holy Spirit comes upon him to do that. Now, I thought Jesus was God. He is. His His divine nature is eternally God, but his human nature is human nature. And the Holy Spirit comes upon human nature to equip, to fit, to power, to lead, to direct in ministry. So when Jesus comes out of the water, the Holy Spirit comes upon the second person of the Trinity. Well, his human nature, the Holy Spirit came upon to fit him for ministry. And then what's the next thing that the Holy Spirit does with Jesus? Do you remember? Drives him out into the wilderness. Sends him out into the wilderness for 40 days. The Holy Spirit compelled him, drove him, pushed him out into the wilderness so that he would be tempted by Satan after fasting for 40 days. The Holy Spirit was instrumental in the, in, in the initiation of Jesus' ministry. And now we see the next phase. The next thing to happen is the church is about to be sent on mission and the Holy Spirit shows up again. There's some parallels between Jesus' baptism and the, the Holy Spirit showing up at Pentecost. Uh, first of all, one of the rare instances where the Holy Spirit takes bodily form. He, he is visible in the shape of something. Spirits are not visible. They have to become visible. They have to be made visible for some reason. So at Jesus' baptism, the, the Holy Spirit takes the form of a dove and lands on Jesus. At Pentecost, the Holy Spirit takes the form of tongues of fire and lands on the disciples. He took bodily form. Again, in this instance, God is speaking. In the baptism of Jesus, God spoke from heaven. This is my son in whom I'm pleased. God is speaking now, but he's speaking not from heaven. He's speaking from earth. The disciples are are preaching about Jesus Christ as the Spirit gave them utterance. They are speaking God's words as they burst out on Pentecost morning and announced to the nations, this Jesus whom you crucified. See, I'm already jumping into the second part, into Peter's sermon. Can't help it. That's God speaking again. And so as the the Spirit descended on Jesus and drove him into the wilderness, the Holy Spirit descends on the church and drives him into the streets of Jerusalem. Not out into the wilderness to be tempted. Their temptation has been handled by Jesus Christ. That has been resolved. Our Christ has, has fought the battle and won. He has resisted temptation. Instead, now the Holy Spirit is compelling them to the mission that Jesus already told them he would give them. He said, you will be my disciples in Jerusalem, in Judea, in Samaria, and to the uttermost parts of the earth. And right now, through the power of the Holy Spirit, they are his witnesses in Jerusalem. The Holy Spirit has pushed them out the door. They're now in the streets announcing the glory of who Christ is. And that's because the Holy Spirit did that. But the Holy Spirit was initiating more than just these New Testament, New Covenant realities. The Holy Spirit was present at creation. All right, it's been a long time since we started Genesis 1, but do you remember? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was void and formless, and the Spirit hovered over the face of the deep. So it's not like God was detached from creation. He creates the world and his Holy Spirit hovers. And the word for hovering is like an eagle hovering over its eggs, about to do something, watching over its, its, uh, its eaglets, its little babies. 
And that's the picture that the Holy Spirit is hovering over the earth. Something is about to happen. The Holy Spirit is there to initiate. He's an initiator. He, he starts things. What we saw last week, the other thing he did is he wrote the scriptures. Do you remember that? The scriptures had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke by the mouth of David concerning Judas. The Holy Spirit spoke by the mouth of David concerning Judas. He wrote the scriptures. He speaks through the scriptures. And then the, the, the most magnificent one for us personally is, by the Holy Spirit, you are born again. In John chapter 3, Jesus tells Nicodemus, you must be born again or you can't even see the kingdom of God. And when Nicodemus questions him, he says, no, you have to be born of the spirit and of the water or you have no hope. The spirit initiates, he starts our new life. He comes to us and brings us new life. The, the spirit is a starter of things. He's an initiator. It's the spirit that connects to the people so that they're able to do this new thing. So um, previously, um, Dan preached and he said this was the beginning of the church. This is where the church is, kind of springs forward. Um, it depends on what you mean, the beginning of the church. Uh, what do you mean by beginning and what do you mean of church? Um, the way I would say it, I, I'm not disagreeing with you, Dan. You're cool. Um, what I would say is that the church, defined as the people of God, has always been there. The difference is this is the Holy Spirit coming and residing on the church instead of individuals. And that residing on the church instead of individuals then empowers the church to go forward and to go out. So um, what's the big thing that happens here? What did the, the people in the street notice? Tongues, right? Gift of tongues. That's what we always focus on here. When we go to this, this is, this is you know, they received the gift of tongues and they did stuff. We're going to have to deal with the gift of tongues, and we will as we go through, but let me just say a couple of kind of introductory things to set it up. First of all, the gift of tongues is mentioned far less in the book of Acts than you think it is. It doesn't happen all that often. It happens here. In chapter 10, the Roman centurion, Cornelius, when Peter comes and preaches to him, will receive the gift of tongues. He will speak in, in, in unknown tongues. Um, in chapter 19, Paul will run into some disciples of John the Baptist who don't even know that there is a Holy Spirit. And so when he lays hands on them, they receive the Holy Spirit and they begin to speak in tongues. And then there's another one that doesn't use the word tongues, but probably is. And that's in chapter 8 when they go to Samaria and some Samarians believe, but they haven't received the Spirit. So the apostles come and lay their hands on them and they can tell that they've received the Spirit. So it's probably best to understand that as they were speaking in tongues. Something happened. That's it. Four instances in a nice long book of, uh, of the book of Acts. So it doesn't happen as often as you think it does. Um, there are plenty of people who we have no witness of them speaking in tongues when they're saved. So uh, is this speaking in tongues, is it descriptive or prescriptive? Remember, that's the question from Acts. Is it just saying what happened or is it telling us this is what's supposed to happen? Well, different portions of the church will take this in different ways. Um, Dan, a couple weeks ago, did uh, uh, the Azusa Street Revival. That was kind of the birth of Pentecostalism in the United States. And from Pentecostalism came uh, Charismatics. Um, they're, they're different but similar. So what Charismatics and Pentecostals say is they look at tongues and they say, this is descriptive. This is something that Christians should be doing. 
is speaking in tongues. Um, there is another group of church people who are called cessationists, and they say, nope, that ceased. That, don't do that. That's not, that's not happening anymore. Guess where I land? You know me. I'm too wishy-washy to take either stance. <laughs> I'm open but cautious. What I'm going to do is say, it happened. The Holy Spirit can and has done this. So now let's look at the rest of the New Testament. Is this something we're told to expect? Well, in all the rest of the New Testament, the only other place that it shows up is in 1 Corinthians chapter 14. And even there it says, don't prohibit the speaking in tongues. But it doesn't say anywhere in the New Testament, all believers will speak in tongues at all, whenever. It's not something that's promised to everybody. And I, sorry, my cessationist friends, I don't think it's ended either. I think this is one of those things where the Spirit is going to do what the Spirit's going to do. And if he gives you the ability to speak in tongues, go for it. If he doesn't, don't be grieved. When Lisa and I first got saved, we, we were hanging around with some charismatic Roman Catholics. We were Roman Catholic at the time. And we came to a, a charismatic Catholic meeting here in town. And the first thing they did was kind of jump on us and you've got to pray to receive the gift of tongues. And I was like, okay, well, I've been praying in tongues for about a year. So um, they never asked. They just assume you hadn't and you got to get this. And I was like, that doesn't feel right. It was at that moment I thought, something's not right here. We're missing something. What we've done is we've made tongues now standard for everybody. This is this, this certain standard of spirituality. And that's not what we see in the book of Acts or in the rest of the New Testament. So if it happens, it happens. Um, what I would say is let's go back and look at these instances where it does happen and see if there's not a common thread. Here in chapter 2, there's a brand new thing happening. The apostles, the disciples are bursting into the street and they are preaching Jesus to everybody. This is a new chapter in the, in the history of, redemption, of uh, how God is redeeming his people. And so they speak in tongues so that all of these other people will stop and listen. There is a whirring sound in the upper room, this, this wind sound, so that these people will stop and listen. God interrupts in a brilliant way to bring the gospel to these folks. So that's what's happening here. What about Cornelius? I don't want to preach that sermon before we get there, but we've got to look at it. What happened is there's a persecution in Jerusalem, and everybody scatters except for the apostles. The apostles tend to stick around Jerusalem, but Peter winds up going north. And when he goes north, Cornelius, who's a, a, a Roman centurion and a faithful man, he built the synagogue for the Jews. He worships God. He receives a vision in the night. An angel says, hey, go send for Peter. He's going to be at this place. So God moved Peter up north, and then God sent an angel to tell him, now go get him. And so Peter has that amazing dream about food. And when he comes to Cornelius, this is really the first Gentile convert and it's a huge question. It's going to be a huge issue for the church as we go through the book of Acts is what do we do with the Gentiles? And so when Peter starts preaching, he didn't even finish his sermon and they're all busting into tongues. Now later when people are saying, wait, you went and ate with Gentiles? Peter says, look, dude, the spirit fell on them like he did on us when we believed. Who am I? I'm not going to argue with him. So again, this is that new chapter, this new thing that's breaking forward is now we've, we've got the answer. Are the Gentiles included in the church? Do they receive the Holy Spirit? You bet they did, and it's visible. It's something you can't deny because they spoke in tongues. 
the disciples of John the Baptist, wait a minute, they're disciples of John the Baptist. In the book of Acts, John the Baptist lost his head way back in the early parts of Luke. He still got disciples following him around. What was his ministry? He, he was a pointer. He was going, follow Jesus. He's the Messiah, and he still got people following him. So now when, when they come to them and they say, did you, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you were baptized? They go, we didn't know there was a Holy Spirit. Well, who were you baptizing? We were baptizing the baptism of John. Oh, well, that explains it. Let's take care of that real quick. They needed to see a visible sign that these disciples of John now became spirit-filled disciples of Jesus Christ. It was this breaking in, this new thing that happened. So where you see tongues in the book of Acts happening is these leading edges, these breaking barriers, as a, a manifestation of, yes, the Holy Spirit came upon them. Because that's what he's authenticating through the book of Acts is part of the conversion experience is you become filled with the Holy Spirit. So is it descriptive or prescriptive? It's descriptive that when you're saved, you receive the Holy Spirit. It's, or it's uh, prescriptive that when you're saved, you, fill, you receive the Holy Spirit. It's descriptive in that sometimes it involved tongues. And sometimes it didn't. That's, that's how that works. Um, the, report, the important part that we see again and again is when the Holy Spirit comes upon a new believer, they're now empowered and enabled to go out and speak about Jesus. That's the, the breaking forth of the gospel moving forward. And the Holy Spirit shows up and does miraculous things in different ways to bring the gospel forward, to move it forward. So that's the ministry of the Holy Spirit is that that's what he's doing. And that idea that, um, that we are given the ability to, to preach the gospel, Jesus told us that back in Luke 12. He says, when, you, when they bring you before the synagogues and the rulers and the authority, don't be anxious about how you should defend yourself or what you should say. For the Holy Spirit will teach you what to say in that very hour. So that's the promise, is you will receive the Holy Spirit. When you're challenged, the Holy Spirit will give you the right words. That's his ministry. This is what the Holy Spirit does, is God personally draws near to us. So we have to answer that question that I raised, because I raised it, and I probably could have got away without asking it, but what about the Old Covenant? The Holy Spirit shows up here and bursts in on this New Covenant community. What about in the Old Covenant? Was the Holy Spirit present? Was this the new appearance of the Holy Spirit? This is the first time he shows up. This is his, his, his Broadway debut. Well, no, that's it, not what's going on. The difference between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant is in the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit would come upon people for specific times for specific reasons. David was blessed because the Spirit remained with him. The Spirit came on Saul while Saul was king, but then the Spirit departed. There was no guarantee in the Old Covenant that the Spirit would be sealing you, would be on you, and as you're a covenant member, you receive the Spirit. There was no guarantee of that. God would come upon people and he would depart from people. He would equip them for, for something that they had to do, and then he would leave them. In, um, in Exodus, the uh, elders are called together, the leaders, and Moses is speaking with them, and they all start speaking in tongues. That's an Old Testament example of speaking in tongues. There were two of the elders that didn't go to the meeting. They were sitting in the tent, and they start speaking in tongues in, the, in there. That was those extraordinary things. It was so unique because the Spirit was not given to everybody in the Old Covenant. That's why when Jesus showed up, they killed him. And some of them followed him is because the Old Covenant community was mixed. 
believers and non-believers, people who loved God and people who couldn't stand him. They were, as long as you followed these specific set of rules, it was fairly hard to get kicked out of the old covenant. You were part of it. What about the new covenant? Why is it different now? Because the, the Holy Spirit is part of the seal. He is part of the promise of the new covenant. He is called the seal and a guarantee. So in 2 Corinthians 1.22, it says that God has put his seal on us and given us his spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. How do you know that you will be saved eternally? How do you know that you will be in heaven with God because you have received, you have been sealed with the Holy Spirit? Not touched, not sprinkled, you have been sealed, stamped. That's the guarantee. And, and Paul uses that in, a little bit later in 2 Corinthians. In 5 5, he says, He who has presented us for this very thing is God, or has prepared us for this very thing is God, who has given us the Spirit as a guarantee. So in the new covenant, the promise is, You will be my people forever. Your sins will be forgiven. I'll give you a new heart. Ramey read from Ezekiel, I will take that heart of stone out, I'll replace it with a heart of flesh. Here is the guarantee I've sealed you with my Holy Spirit. This is the promise. Ephesians chapter 1 repeats that same phrase, that we were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. Who is the guarantee? Ephesians 4.30, don't grieve the Holy Spirit by whom you were sealed. So the, the covenant promise of the new covenant is sealed, it's guaranteed, it's stamped on us by the arrival of the Holy Spirit. So yes, it's different than the old covenant. What God promised was that everybody in the new covenant would receive the seal of his Holy Spirit. That's how you know you're in the new covenant is you've received the seal of the Holy Spirit. In the Old Covenant, the, the purpose of the Old Covenant was that this people group would produce the Messiah, that Jesus would come from the tribe of Judah, that he would come from the nation of Israel, that he would come from the offspring of Abraham. And so that group brought forth the Messiah. Once the Messiah comes, it's a new covenant, and in the new covenant, the blessing of the Holy Spirit is poured out on all of us. So. There's a distinction, but that doesn't mean the Holy Spirit wasn't, was absent in the Old Covenant. He was working. He was doing things. As a matter of fact, Peter tells us that, that people prophesied in the Old Testament when the Spirit gave them the words, that they were carried along by the Spirit. So the prophets, as they're announcing the, the glories that are going to come when Jesus comes, that's the Holy Spirit working in them. He was present in the Old Covenant. He was not ubiquitous in the Old Covenant. How's that for a $10 college word? He wasn't in everyone in the Old Covenant. He was on special people, leaders, priests, um, faithful Anna in the temple who was waiting for the Messiah, uh, these kind of people. That's the promise of the Old One, the old Covenant. And so the promise of the New Covenant is that he would write the law on our hearts. That's Jeremiah chapter 31. And the promise being fulfilled, the picture of that is in uh, 2 Corinthians 3.3 when uh, Paul says that you're a letter from Christ to us, written not on hearts of stone, but on, on fleshy hearts. The law being written on your heart, that's that promise that's fulfilled from, um, from uh, Jeremiah 31, from Ezekiel that, that uh, Ramey read too. So this is what the Holy Spirit does. So it's important to ask the question, how other people view this? What happens? Um, so that's that last little bit. And they were amazed after they recount that we're hearing tongues that you know, our native languages, this is the interpretation. They were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, what does this mean? How is this possible? This doesn't happen. And others mocked, saying they're drunk with new wine. Folks, I've talked to drunk people. 
they do seem to speak another language. I'm not positive it's an earthly human language. So the explanation that they're drunk seems a little out of line to me. Um, this man is speaking perfect Phrygian. He must be drunk. He can't, if he's drunk, he can't even speak perfect Galilean. Why would he be speaking Phrygian? So that, that seems out of line. But this is the problem, is this is so out of the ordinary. This event is so dramatically different that they're grasping at straws. There's got to be some explanation from this, some natural explanation. There's got to be some way to, to write it off. So I don't know if you had this experience when you became a, a Christian of people would say, well, he's different now. And he thinks he's too good for us. Or he thinks he's too smart. Now he's too, he's too good to hang around with us anymore. Now he's you know, got religion. And, and he's, they're trying to explain away this change that they see in you. The point is the Holy Spirit did something in you. And people recognize it. And they either go, what is this? Or he's drunk. They have to come up with an answer one way or the other. They, they, there's some obvious tangible difference in you that has been identified. And what does that mean? So that's the problem. Um, I was really helped by John Piper. I think he, he did a sermon on, on the gifts of the Holy Spirit, and I think he did a very good job. So let me just read a, a portion of the sermon that he did. He says, surely the charismatic renewal has something to teach us here. In sacramental churches, the gift of the Holy Spirit is virtually equated with the event of water baptism. In Protestant evangelicalism, it's equated with a subconscious work of God in regeneration which you only know you have because the Bible says you do if you believe. So you either get this, well, of course you received the Holy Spirit. We poured water on your forehead when you were two. Or, of course you received the Holy Spirit because you believed. And that's it. <laughs> Nothing else. So what Piper is saying is he's, he's taking a look at the charismatic movement and saying, surely they've got something to say for us here. And it's not what you think. Listen to where he goes with this. He says, the real issue the charismatics raise for us is not the issue of tongues. In itself, it's relatively unimportant. The real valuable contribution of the charismatic renewal is their relentless emphasis on the truth that receiving the gift of the Holy Spirit is a real life-changing experience. Christianity, not merely, or Christianity is not merely an array of glorious ideas. It is not merely the performance of rituals and sacraments. It is the life-changing experience of the Holy Spirit through faith in Jesus Christ, the Lord of the universe. So if we have anything to gain from the charismatics, it's not tongues. I agree with Piper, that's, that's minor. What the charismatics have to say to us is the Holy Spirit is real, he's alive, he's personal, and he does things. So that's why they would look at these men and say, well, they're drunk. The Holy Spirit is active in them. He is doing something in them. He's working in and through them, and there has to be an explanation. What about you? Doesn't it seem odd that, that Paul would meet these disciples of John and say, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you were baptized? That, that seems like an odd question because if they were evangelicals, they'd say, well, yeah, I thought that pastor said everybody got the Holy Spirit when they became believers. I, yeah, sure. Um, what if somebody came to you and say, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? How do you know? How do you think about it? There's a diagnostic question is, is how do you receive the Holy Spirit? 
How did the Holy Spirit come to you? If you think I received the Holy Spirit because I was baptized, or if you think I received the Holy Spirit because I acknowledged this, this list of truths that somebody walked me through from Bible verses, what you're thinking of is the Holy Spirit as a force. He can be activated by pushing these right buttons, and blam, you've got the Holy Spirit. If, if instead somebody was to ask you, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed, and you were to say, oh my gosh, yes, you wouldn't believe what kind of things happened. I, I, for, for example, I remember one time picking up the Bible when I was in high school. I'd gone partying one night, woke up in somebody's hotel room and I pulled the Bible out. And I said, well, I should read the Bible. And I looked at 1 Timothy or 2 Timothy and it didn't make a lick of sense to me. I, I read about four paragraphs. I'm like, don't get it. Threw it back in the drawer and went back to sleep. But when it was time for me to come to Christ, did I receive the Holy Spirit? You bet I did because I picked up the book of Acts and I read and it made sense. By the time I got to the end of the book of the Acts, I was like, wait a minute, you guys, this is real. This really happened. This is truth. Well, what's the difference between when I was in high school and when I was 20 something years old? It's not that I got that much smarter. Um, I, I don't think I did. It was that the Holy Spirit showed up. He opened the word to me. He made his word intelligible to me. So did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? Maybe your conversion wasn't that dramatic. Maybe you were just a little kid when you believed. The question is, is he doing something in your life now? What is he doing in your life now? Where is he leading? One of the warning signs in modern evangelicalism, I think, that we're beginning to adopt a mechanical view of the, the spirit is spiritual gift inventories. Ever taken them? I have. Um, as a matter of fact, back when Lisa and I were Catholics, we took this thing called the Enneagram. And um, it's a personality test with these different numbers and weird symbols and stuff. And that's getting hip now. Some of the, uh, the Christians in Nashville are beginning to talk about the Enneagram and, and how wonderful it is, the, the spiritual Enneagram. Um, it, it sounds spooky. It sounds really creepy. It's just a personality test is really what it comes down to. But the problem with Myers-Briggs, the Enneagram, with spiritual gift inventories is they're asking you about you. You are the worst person to ask about you. You know the least about you. You know what you think about you is what goes on inside your head. The you that needs to be assessed is the you that other people see. So ask other people what your spiritual gift is. Don't ask yourself. You know what your, your answer will be? Whatever you like to do. And you know what? You know the one that comes up a lot is I'm a prophet. And what they mean by prophet is I can zing people. I, I, I can call people out because I'm a prophet so I can be rude. That's my spiritual gift. Here's the other problem with, it, with identifying spiritual gifts is not only is it focused on you and what you like to do rather than what God is doing in and through you is we tend to then categorize ourselves. Well, what am I? I took the spiritual gifts inventory and I am this. This is the spiritual gift I have. And the idea is it's static. The Holy Spirit came upon me when I believed. He bopped me on the head with this stamp and that's who I am. And for the rest of my life, I will have the gift of service. Amen. Or I took the Enneagram and I'm a number seven and I will be a number seven for the rest of my life. And that's who I am. I took a Myers-Briggs and I'm a, I don't remember the acronyms, PFBT or whatever it is. And so that explains who I am. What we wind up doing is we begin to believe the stories that we tell ourselves. This is who I am, therefore I must behave that way. The reality is you are far more dynamic than that. You change and grow, you learn. The Holy Spirit, if he's there, is working on you to change you and grow you and equip you.
So the Holy Spirit may give you a gift at conversion because the church or the group that you're part of may need that gift. But three years from then, when you move to someplace else, that gift may vaporize in front of you. It may be gone and God say, I, I don't need you to do that anymore. I'm going to fit you for this. You go, but I don't do children's ministry. Well, you do now. The Holy Spirit just gave you the ability, gave you the calling. Go thou and do children's ministry because that's what he's called you to. But if you've convinced yourself that your gift is hospitality, you'll never do service. But the Holy Spirit may be calling you to that. So beware of those, those spiritual gifts inventories. That can be a diagnostic that you're approaching the Holy Spirit as a static being, as a force, as, as something that, that God just flips on you and that's it. In reality, he's constantly working in and through his church. He's drawing us in. He's calling us to different things. He's leading us in different directions. And the, the awkward part is sometimes it's not comfortable. Sometimes I would never answer that question that way on the spiritual gifts inventory because I get really twitchy when I have to meet new people. But you know what? The Holy Spirit may be going, time for some hospitality. Do you remember what Paul told Timothy? He said, practice the gift of evangelism until you get an evangelist. Paul's like, uh, Timothy's like, dude, no, I'm a preacher. I'm a teacher. I'm a leader. I, I've, I've got some really good books on leadership. I don't do evangelism. And Paul says, no, dude, you got to go do it. Even though this is spiritual gift inventory, didn't indicate that. He did it anyway. God will call you to these roles. Sometimes they're uncomfortable. If we have received the Holy Spirit and we recognize his work in us, be aware that he's leading, he's drawing, he's calling. And he may take you in awkward directions or he may take you in super comfortable directions. But be aware and be, be alive because our God is personal. Because the God that has created us wants to dwell with us. He wants to be involved with us. He wants to work with us. Lo, I am with you until the end of the age. He will never depart from us. And that's tremendously good news. What we're going to see next week is when the Holy Spirit comes upon these people, we're going to watch Peter transform right before our eyes. He's going to go from, oh, hey, man, others may, def may, may defect from you, Jesus, but I'll, I'll die with you if I have to, uh, to... A woman, a little servant girl saying, hey, aren't you Galilee? I never knew him. What we're going to see next week is this new Peter. The Holy Spirit has done something in Peter. He's a different man. And he's going to speak boldly because the Holy Spirit has given him utterance. And that's what it says right at the end there is we hear them telling in our own tongue the mighty works of God. They didn't come and tell about what great fellowship they had. Or, you know, we were up in the upper room and boy, we were, we were doing some Bible study and Thomas came up with this insight and it was so great. What they talk about is they're talking about the mighty works of God. We were in the upper room and we were wondering, what's this promise that Jesus promised us? And we're waiting for that. And we're studying that. And here it is. Here's the mighty works of God. This is what Yahweh has been doing and will do. So that's what it looks like to be filled with the Holy Spirit. This is the work that he's going to do. So much more we could say. It was just so hard to rein all that in because there's a lot more. But what we'll do is we'll just save it as the Holy Spirit shows up and does more and more and more through the book. We'll unpack some more of how he works in his people. But I thought it was really important for us to get a sense of who he is, what he's doing, and to, to remember that he is a person who's intimate and close with us. Let's pray. Lord, Holy Spirit, we can pray to you because you are God. You are the eternal God who has, there's never been a time where there hasn't been a Holy Spirit. 
where you haven't been um, with the Father, with the Son. You have always eternally been with them. And Lord, since the beginning of creation, you have been with us. You dwelt, you hovered over the face of the deep. You empowered, you were breath breathed into Adam's nose so that he could come to life. Lord, you have been active throughout history. And Lord, we are, we are so grateful that now you are our seal. You are our guarantee. You are our promise that Jesus is with us forever, that we will be in the new heavens and the new earth, that we are indeed saved. So Lord, Holy Spirit, thank you for being who you are. Lord, I pray that you would convince us all to remember that you are personal, that you're intimate, that you're not a force, that you're with us because God is with us. So Lord, Holy Spirit, would you manifest yourself in us in ways that you choose, not ways that we choose. I pray, Lord, that we would see tongues of fire and disciples spilling out into the streets, announcing the mighty works of God. Lord, would you, Holy Spirit, sweep through this valley and bring revival, draw many people to yourself, call them to faith in Jesus Christ, give them a new heart, take out that heart of stone, put in a heart of flesh. Initiate them, pour them into the church of Jesus Christ and secure them, Lord, with a seal on their heart. We ask these things in expectation of you doing them because your word promises that, that that's how you operate. So Lord, would you operate that here with us, through us, and in us. And we ask in Christ's name, amen.